Um, all right, so if you recall, let's get into this here. <laughs> what a timely Sunday school. Okay, um, what a timely Sunday school. We started off, I started off trying to justify the project. Why should anyone care about polity? And then I received the greatest real-life illustration later that afternoon I've ever received for why you should care about polity and who has authority in the church. Because um, you might think it's a little bit odd that people who haven't been there for three years can show up and have a contributing say. Okay? And a vote. And our polity, we'll get to the specifics of ours, if you're in, if you're if you are not actively participating in church life for more than six months, you transfer into associate membership where you still have the accountability of the eldership. You are still the proper object um, of church discipline should you decide to turn away from, from the Lord, live an unfitting lifestyle, but you do not have a, you don't have a vote in anything. You don't have a positive vote. So that would never happen in our church because of largely the, the way we have arranged the polity. Okay, so if you recall, I kind of we kind of narrowed it down to two different kinds of polity, a three and a four. And I talked with multiple people last time. They're like, "Oh, when you laid out that third one, I was like, ah, I think that's it." The the where and this is uh, and it's where the authority kind of rises up from the congregation to the elders, and then I distinguish that from a second one, um, uh, uh, and I call the first one elder rule, where what makes what makes the elders authoritative, properly speaking is that the, the congregation has the authority, but they push it upward by officer selection, okay? Uh, but, but then I argued for a second one, congregational rule with elders leading it, that said there's really two different kinds of authorities, and elders don't have authority because the congregation gives it to them, okay? Like the lawmaker, lawmakers in Washington have legitimate authority to pass laws because we have they represent us and we voted them in or whatever the case may be. Um, but it's it's a totally different authority. So there is no ascending structure. And uh, I'm going to just give me one second here. Just hear me out on this. Okay. So someone was asking, how can we have the example of different kinds of authority? Okay. So uh, consider uh, the offense of a football team. Everyone's authorized to be on the field. Everyone can carry the ball. Uh, everyone is tasked with moving the ball into the end zone down the field. And everyone can do that according to the rules, and they're supposed to. That's why they're on the field. However, the quarterback has, a, has a, an additional kind of authority to call plays. He's the one that gives shape to how you're going to get down the field, right? Wide receiver can run in the end zone, but he doesn't call plays, okay? What I'm suggesting is something like it's a different kind. The, the, the quarterback isn't, you know, his, his touchdowns when he runs in count just as much as everyone else's. But he has a different kind of authority to shape the way the mission is going to go based off the calls from the coach or if he's calling the plays himself, okay? So uh, that, that's, how, that's two different ways to be authoritative, and that's what I think we're going to see. So y'all know me. I am an expert at doing these graphics. This right here, y'all. Look at this gym, okay? This is a graphic. This is a graphic representation of what we called elder rule. So read this with me. So members possess the authority foundationally, but push it upward by officer selection. Key, thereafter, legitimate exercises of authority, judging, teaching to be faithful, regulating membership, enacting discipline, binding consciences through the word, 
are reserved for those officers, elders, who may or may not be members of that particular congregation themselves. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. Depends where you're at. Okay? If you're a, a, a teaching elder in a, a PCA church, you're a member of the Presbytery. All right? If you're a rule, if you're a, a elder in a Reformed Baptist church that does elder rule, you're a member of the church. So that changes. But the point is, members possess it foundationally, but they kick it up to eldership. And then after that, the legitimate exercise of authority is, 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 is possessed here, but it's exercised here. Okay? Contrast that with the second one. Again, we're still recapping here so you understand the difference. Between the congregationally rule elder-led, the whole church, members and officers, both possess and exercise the same authority and responsibility to identify the what and who of the gospel, while elders have an additional kind of authority and responsibility to train and shepherd members on the what, who, and how of the gospel and protect the flock from harm. Here's what this graph looks like. Okay? See, this one's even better. Oh, no. <laughs> Here it is. Okay, so I want you to look at this. So start on the bottom right. Who has the authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom? That's what we're going to get to today. The answer, the whole congregation. On what ground? Union with Christ and the priesthood of all believers. Move over to the left, middle there. Who has the authority to instruct in the use of the keys and bind consciences in light of the gospel? Answer, elders on what ground? Being appointed by the Holy Spirit to shepherd the household of God. So you see in this model, the elders don't have authority because it got given to them by the congregation. Okay, um, it, They have authority because they're in a particular role and God has invested that role with a particular kind of authority. Instead, they are part of the congregation. Okay? All right, so questions about that before I, uh, I move on here. That's just the recap, okay? Because now I'm going to shift into arguing for this second kind of uh, polity. Second kind of polity. All right. Everyone understands the distinction? Yes? Okay. Okay, so here we go. Here's, here's so I'm going to give a, this one I'm going to be a little bit more brief on. Uh, because this is a biblical theological argument and gives a covenantal trajectory for this. Um, but it nevertheless is not as watertight as I would like to do theology with. So here's the idea. Adam was created. He was commissioned to bear fruit and multiply, rule and subdue uh, the earth. Regrettably, uh, that did not happen. Uh, Adam is cast out of the garden. We have a couple chapters. We have Cain, Abel. Things get... Uh, really bad. They're not looking so rosy. And so God recreates, starts over with the most righteous man in the world, Noah. Noah. Uh, and then when he, Noah and his family come off the ark, he gives them a very similar commission to bear fruit and multiply. But the command to rule and subdue isn't there. And I'm, I would argue, and I don't have time to defend all this, um, uh, but because the image, the image of God, which is which has allowed them to rule, has been marred. And so there's a refracted version in Genesis chapter 9 that said all of the animals will be given to you. The fear of them will be placed in them. They will be given to you. So, so what, what, was, uh, what was commanded in Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 is given in Genesis 9 because they've lost the uh, perfect image, not to be confused with the whole image, but the perfect image of God which allowed them to rule 
um, and subdue. In the garden, Adam was tasked with keeping the garden. It's been pointed out by a lot of theologians that the language of Adam's um, work in the garden mimicked the language of the priests in the temple. And of course, Moses, if you take this typical mosaic authorship of Genesis, I mean, he was the one who was uh, writing the rest of the, the, the Pentateuch as well. He wasn't, you know, a lot of people struggle to remember that Genesis wasn't written real time. In the beginning, Moses, you know, sat on like an empty star or something. Here it was. No, I mean, all of it was written. So he would have used, he's using the language that the priests would keep, uh, keep the temple holy, uh, 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 protect the people, um, help try to protect the people from sin, keep the camp pure. Okay, so we get Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God says, all right, y'all, sorry, you get Babel at 11. The, the world's most righteous man, given the commission, multiply, bear fruit. All of a sudden, the world's right, most righteous man ends up drunk and naked in his tent. He falls to uh, fruit as well, as you're listening narratively. Um, then we get to Genesis chapter 11. Instead of bearing fruit and multiplying and spreading out, everyone is coming together instead. And they're building this, this little tower up to God. And then God comes down and confuses their language. And they got to stop the building project because you can't continue to build when you can't tell the person next to you to pass you a brick. So what happens is he, the building project stops, he scatters them, and then Genesis chapter 12, we have Abram, uh, later Abraham, called out of Ur, and, and God says, listen, I'm going to, instead of go do this, he says, I'm going to do this for you. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to make my name great, I'm going to multiply you. Okay, and, we, and then we get the patriarchs, culminating with uh, Jacob and then Joseph, coming into the end of Genesis, and then we have the birth of Israel as a nation down in Egypt, uh, expanding. The Pharaoh comes along, of course, he doesn't know Joseph, doesn't remember those things, ends up enslaving the people. We have the great Exodus account, which is the seminal uh, delivery uh, event in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, recounting God delivering his people to himself. And you get to Sinai, um, which is interesting. In, in, in Exodus 19, he says that to the whole people, before the priesthood has even been constructed, that they are going to be a kingdom of priests. There will be a kingdom of priests, which is language is going to show up later in the New Testament. But they are going to be a holy nation, and they are going to be a royal priesthood mediating the presence and teaching of God to the nations. Then there are, of course, priests who are instituted within, um, within the community there to regulate the sacrifices, make atonement, uh, and all the rest. But then you have Christ who comes along, and I'm, of course I'm skipping over some I'm skipping things here, okay? I'm paying very robust. Christ is the great high priest. He is the second Adam, um, all of the rest of it. And when we are united with Christ, we do not turn back into little Adams trying to do something that Adam failed to do. We become little Christs. We have a different version. We have a different mandate, a different cultural mandate expressed in the Great Commission because of Christ's victory and our union with Christ and the priesthood of all believers. So that's why I have those texts up there. Um, let me just, let me just, if you're not, um, yeah, let me just read a couple of them real quick. If you're not familiar, many of you would be familiar with these verses, uh, but some of you perhaps are not. So it's worth reading. Um, Peter says in chapter two, after talking about the people, a living stone and a holy people, um, uh, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, he says, you are, a, he uses this language from the old Testament explicitly. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous 
light. Similarly, when we go over to Revelation chapter 1 and 5.10, but particularly chapter 1 is the one that most people um, uh, remember, is to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, this is John writing, part of the greeting here, and has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You can go look at 510 on your own. When you think of all of that in the conjunction with Jeremiah 31, a different picture or a more a clearer, even a clearer picture emerges. In Jeremiah 31, it says there's going to be a new covenant. And the thing that we know about the new covenant is it's not going to be like the covenant I made with your fathers. And then there gives some, there's some qualifiers. Okay? In this covenant, no one will be a covenant breaker. That's what it says. In this covenant, everyone will know God. And everyone will have the law written on their heart. You won't have to go to a special person to teach you a law because everyone will know God. They won't have to teach each other. That doesn't mean there's no teaching ministry, obviously. That was a misunderstanding. But the idea is that um, everyone knows God, everyone has a law written on their heart, and no one is a covenant breaker. And so here's the picture. Here's the covenantal expectation. And I know I just went through that super, super fast. But read this with me. If in a covenant where everyone is united to a risen king and commissioned with his promised presence... Matthew 28, I'll be with you always, all authority in heaven and on earth, in which everyone is a priest, in which everyone knows God and what he has taught. It stands to reason that everyone would be authorized and responsible for identifying what counts as God-revealed truth and discerning who appropriately identifies with this truth toward the end of keeping the covenant people holy while accomplishing the Great Commission. Okay? This is the covenantal expectation. So this is a biblical theological positioning here for what I'm going to argue. This right here falls short of being some kind of like decisive argument, folks. This is not watertight. This is a, a, I think, a winsome piece of biblical theology and a good trajectory, but there's a lot of it stands to reasons in this. Okay, But nevertheless, it's worth saying. It's worth saying that in this... If Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests, we're united to Christ, who is the ultimate high priest um, and the second Adam, that um, that we would stand also as priests to God, a kingdom of priests to God, to exercise some kind of kingly and priestly function within the camp in a way that it couldn't be done in the Old Testament because not every because you had covenant breakers in the camp, you had faithless people who were part of the covenant community. Okay, that is the covenantal trajectory. Let's step into the actual, let's get into the nitty-gritty of the actual texts. Having, with that perhaps expectation, with those background things in mind, particularly the priesthood of all believers, particularly Christ as the second Adam, and a great, and a commission with authority in Christ's presence, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. So I hope you brought your Bible. If not, you're, you're going to be doing a lot of like, oh, I wish I knew exactly what that said. Okay, Matthew chapter 16. What is Matthew chapter 16 famous for? Someone tell me. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Glenn, for reading it there out of your Bible. Yes. Matthew chapter 16, probably the most controversial, in church history, one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, and I don't mean the whole chapter. I suppose that what I mean is uh, 13 through 20. So let's read it briefly. Let's read it together briefly, and we're going to walk through it, because this is this and the next one, 16 and 18. You're going to see the keys given to the church, okay? This is the beginning of my argument here. 
the keys given to the church. And in Matthew 18, you're going to see the keys exercised by the church. 16, 18. These are two foundational chair texts for understanding uh, this, this theology, the congregational authority. Verse 13, Matthew writes, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay. So controversy abounds here. Controversy abounds. Our Catholic friends insist that the only that, that who received the uh, keys, properly speaking, was only the Apostle Peter, and that the Pope, as the vicar of Christ on earth, is the successor. He sits on the see of Peter, and because of that, he uh, uh, he can rule. And when he speaks ex cathedra. In, in conjunction with the teaching magisterium on matters in faith and practice, he is guarded from error. He is guarded from error in what he speaks, it's the doctrine of papal infallibility. So, uh, and, and then what are, so the two questions are, who gets the keys? Everyone has to answer this question. It doesn't matter where you are in church history. Who receives the keys and what are they? What exactly does it mean, the keys? Everyone agrees no one's got a key, all right? No one's got a physical key. Um, what does it mean? So the, again, our Catholic friends, the, the keys to the kingdom mean is the, 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 the church has, this, has itself the ability to forgive sins. The church itself has the ability to apply the gospel. The church itself has the ability through uh, absolution and all the rest to literally remove sin through indulgences, which are not a thing just of the past. So everyone thinks that was, people moved past that in the Reformation. It's not. Pro, indulgences are still a very real part of the Catholic Church. Um, so whether it's indulgences, uh, whether it's, in fact, they're actually offering a, a full indulgence or a plenary indulgence a couple of years ago to do a pilgrimage in, um, I believe it's, to, I think it was to Rome. I can't remember, I'll have to look at the details, but it was a full indulgence. So you don't have to spend any time in purgatory if you took that trip. Whew, that's a good time to go on vacation. You know what I mean? Um, but, but that's their understanding. The church, literally, because they're the ones who has the keys, they'll say, look, that's what it says, right? That's where it is. Peter's got it. Pope is the successor of Peter. Um, and, and, uh, and, we, and therefore, the church has the keys. Discussion. Is Peter the rock? Is his confession the rock? What, what is exactly going on there in verse 18? You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And some people trying to avoid the Catholic conclusion have said, well, he's not talking about Peter. He's talking about Peter's confession. Most people don't think that's plausible, including me. It does seem that he's talking about Peter. However, it seems like he is talking about Peter as a confessor. So right here, Peter is the rock because he confessed Jesus. 
Peter and his confession cannot be separated. The church will be built on persons, the who, confessing the right truths, the what, confessors. And if you notice, if you're listening carefully, you have a what and a who here. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Jarbona, Jarbona, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. What's the this? What he just said, right? That part's clear. His answer, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He's affirming his answer. He's saying, Peter, you are someone who has confessed Christ. Um, And so Peter, in this context, can't be divorced from his confession, or it doesn't even make any sense. It isn't Peter the non-confessor. And finally, uh, we have have good reason to believe that the rest of the disciples also received the keys for some other reasons. But Peter, per usual, speaks for the disciples, okay? They are the first confessors. They all receive the keys. Number one, the account begins and ends by addressing all of the disciples. Verse 13, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell that uh, he was the Christ. Um, And if Peter was the only one given the keys, we might reasonably expect throughout the Gospels or even the letters to see a particular degree of ministerial authority or superior kind of um, prerogative to do ministry that might discernibly set him apart from the other disciples. Uh, And aside from talking first, often, we don't see that. We see a Peter, we see Peter deny Jesus three times. We see a Peter who is deeply confused and is rebuked by the Apostle Paul in Galatians for not eating with Gentiles. Do you remember that? Peter is, is rebuked but to his face by the Apostle Paul. We don't get the, we, at least the, the picture is not exactly painted that Peter um, received something with a particular kind of authority that no one else had, a particular kind of prerogative that none of the other disciples had. And what I think we're going to see is that after examining other texts, confirming that all the disciples receive the keys because they're all involved in this activity, um, I think that we are going to then observe that there are examples abound where there's instruction given to the disciples that really they're, they're not giving, given to the disciples in light of being apostles of Christ. They are given to them in light of being orig- the original confessors. Okay, for example, the best, probably the most well-known example that I'm skipping ahead to just for the sake of clarity is the Great Commission. Who is the Great Commission strictly given to? Anyone remember? It's the disciples. The Great Commission is given specifically to the disciples. But no one thinks, and for good reason, for the reason that I'm telling you right now and that we're going to see, that the Great Commission was just something for the apostles and we're like, oh, we, we, don't have to, we don't have to spread the gospel. You know, it was just for them. Hey, I'm not an apostle. I mean, imagine someone's argument here. I'm not an apostle. The Great Commission was given to the apostles. Therefore, uh, the Great Commission is not, not something I need to worry about. Yeah, Asher. Well, are you an apostle? Okay, well, the Great Commission was given to the apostles. He, Jesus turned to his apostles and said, all authority in heaven on earth, right? Right? And so if you're not an apostle, you might say, well, see, it was given to the apostles. I'm not an apostle. But my point is, for all the, for the reasons that we're going to see, no one thinks that. It was given to the apostles, but it wasn't given to them in light of their apostolic office. It was given to them 
that yes, they were apostles, but they were given, it was given to them because they are confessors, because they are the original confessors. Finally, we're going to see that everyone receives the keys, which certainly does not mean that um, someone is infallible, uh, because if, every, if all the disciples receive the keys, that includes who? Judas. There's no indication, for example, that throughout their ministry, like the other disciples are performing miracles or whatever, and Judas tries, like electricity shoots out his fingers. You know, people are like, oh, there's something up with him. When the whole time, he is participating just like everyone else. Okay? Just like everyone else. So I'm suggesting that in this context, it is a stretch, and it is just trying to avoid papist error to try to say it's just his confession. I don't think that's the case. I think it is Peter, but Peter the confessor. Peter the confessor, representative of the rest of the apostles. And how many times, and you'll even see, I'll die with you, and all of the other apostles said the same thing. Remember? That's even how it's phrased. Peter is prominent. He has uh, a prominence among the apostles in terms of how often his name is mentioned, uh, in terms of how often he speaks. And so what I'm suggesting here is that Peter uh, receives the keys because it's told that the, 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 the um, excuse me, that he will be given the keys to the kingdom as a confessor and not simply because he is an apostle and not even because he's a special apostle within the apostles. That's a super, super unliterary reading of this text. Okay? Because on the strict view, it's none of the other apostles got it either. Not the church didn't get it. The other apostles didn't get it. It was simply Peter. Um, and it was because he was a, the special apostle. We don't even, I don't think we see that, okay? Any questions about that before I go on to the next question, which is what constitutes the keys? What constitutes the keys in their exercise? Does what I've said make sense? Does what I'm saying make sense so far? Okay. What constitutes the keys? Everyone has to answer this in church history. Everyone has to get, come to a question. Because who, who exercises the keys is going to be the question, who has ultimate authority? Who has ultimate authority? And that's what we're getting to here. Who has ultimate authority? What constitutes the keys? I took out in my notes, I have very detailed notes here. I took out a ton of them because it's a nightmare to put up on these screens. Like it's bad PowerPoint best practice to have like seven lines up there. So I'm going to work through some of these things. If, you're, if you would like the more extended notes on this section, I'm happy to send them to you, but I didn't want to put them up there. Um, let me suggest four, four indicators for what the keys are, and then I'm going to make a suggestion. And then throughout the other texts, as we walk through the rest of this um, over the next couple of weeks, uh, uh, I think you will see this borne out. But it, it, it's more, it, it is, a, is a complete picture that has to form. And as it turns out, I'm actually not, not actually going to be here next week, but so we don't lose ground here, I'm going to record the Sunday school. So we're going to continue to move forward. So I'm going to continue through with these arguments. So. Um, the first is this, the binding and loosing language very, very likely refers and stems from um, proto-rabbinic interpretation, proto-rabbinic interpretation of the uh, Jewish law, the halakha. Um, so before rabbis officially were the leaders in the community, you had the proto-rabbinic, you had proto-rabbinic Judaism that was making Judaism more about the sacred text than just the cultic experience. Uh, the, the, meaning the uh, the institutional experience, such that when Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they were ready to go because they still had the sacred text. They were guarding it. They were Jewish leaders in the community. 
Um, so before that kind of really got off the ground, you had these proto-rabbis interpreting the Jewish law, the Holocaust, which includes the law of Moses, but it also included a lot of other things that had developed. And the binding and loosing language comes directly, whether or not, I mean, it's very, very likely because of the Jewish nature of Matthew's audience to depict this exact phrase, which comes directly out of the proto-rabbinic Judaism. Um, it's likely borrowed from it, at least conceptually. And in that tradition, it could involve either understanding the law in the abstract, or what I'm going to call a what. What is it? What does it say? What's the rule here? What's the truth? Or its relevance to a particular person. That's a who. Okay? That's how that phrase was generally used in the proto-rabbinic interpretation of the halakha. To either you could you be it was broad enough to be understood either as the what the what is the law in the abstract or its relevance to a particular person. Number two, Matthew eighteen eighteen, which we're going to turn to next, puts the keys to use for church discipline. That's going to help us understand what the keys are. We're going to get a little case study, right? So if you were wondering what some object is that you found, and someone said, "Hey, look, that person's using it." Wouldn't that be helpful in maybe determining something about what it is exactly? We're going to see that. The keys are used in Matthew chapter 18 for church discipline. It's going to tip us off. We're going to be listening carefully for that. Okay. Number three, Jesus uses the neuter in the Greek, whatever, and not the masculine, whomever. That's, there's a big difference there. Because whatever leaves space for what and who. Okay. Whatever, it's just very generic. Your leaves, it's more, it's more generic, more of an umbrella category that leaves space for, again, a personal object or an impersonal object, a what or a who. And then finally, and perhaps most perceptively, we need to realize that binding and loosing are direct opposites. They are presented as antonyms here. Binding, okay, tying up, and loosing, releasing. Okay, if, 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 when you look at the Greek, it's basically what it sounds like in the English. Binding is the opposite of letting someone go and loosing, okay? This is important because it means that the keys need to be able to do what? What? Huh? Yeah, so they get right. So the keys need to be able to, to perform a set of opposite tasks, okay? They need to be able to accomplish X and not X or something and then the negation of that. Okay, and this seems to rule out single function interpretation. So some people just come up here and I, and I took out all of the different interpretations in church history because it's absurd how many they are. But one one uh, is just this refers to church discipline. And that's based on Matthew chapter 18. Certainly, uh, it certainly includes church discipline or that's well, to be more precise, church discipline uh, it is certainly used for church discipline. But um, it's got to be more than that. Because we've got to have a pair of opposites, it seems. The keys have to be able to do opposite. Um, as well as dual function interpretations of the keys that aren't opposites. So, for example, preaching and church discipline. Well, preaching isn't the opposite of church discipline. Church discipline is not the opposite of preaching. Okay, Preaching, I'm going to say, is a part of how the corporate church uses in the, in the keys as the elders lead in the how. Okay? 
but to say that so so I think this one is the is one of the is one of the tightest and clarifying ones here if you're following the argument with me if the keys are able to do both x and not x they're able to do opposites then we have to have a dual function and they have to be dual function op that's how we're supposed to understand it in the language of the analogy here okay so here's what I'm suggesting and then we are going to I'm going to read a uh, read an excerpt and uh we're going to continue on. Here's what I'm suggesting. Again, I know bad PowerPoint breast practice. I had 10 of these. Imagine 10 paragraphs like that, okay? In conjunction with what we will see, oh, excuse me, uh, moving forward, it seems very likely that binding and loosing with the keys refers to the authority to pass judgment and make public rulings on particular what's, doctrines and confessions, and who's, people claiming to believe the proper what on behalf of heaven. That's serious business, by the way. The keys deputize the holders to render a public verdict on what is right, what is the right confession and practice of the gospel, and who is a true confessor in heaven's name. That's what I am suggesting that the kingdom of that the keys are. And what you'll see is there is a way to do that positively that says yes. And there's a way to do that negatively, which you see in Matthew chapter 18. Dual function, opposites, wielding public authority. Okay, let me read this right here to you. Again, if you're looking for the gold standard work in the modern period on this issue, it is our man, Jonathan Lehman. So after talking about the authority, I'm just, just, yeah, so just going to start with a they. It's kind of an awkward way to start a quote, but it, it'll work. They, meaning what we just talked about, the congregation, the people, those who hold the keys. We're going to get to the congregation. I haven't got to that for you, but those who hold the keys um, make knowledge claims or truth claims on behalf of heaven. They are authorized declarations concerning the what of the gospel as well as the who. Yes, that statement is a faithful articulation of the gospel. No, that practice is not keeping with the gospel. Yes, we affirm his profession of faith. No, we do not affirm hers. Could the wielder of the keys make declarations that are wrong and so misrepresent heaven? Of course. Still, the church will treat such statements as officially true. That's why it's public. Public, no one can discern hearts here. Officially true, such that they bear enough legal force in the church to bind new covenant community on earth by them at least until those statements prove untrue. And when they prove untrue, you have Matthew chapter 18. That is how you deal with the false professor, the person who holds up a correct what. They say, no, I believe this. I confess the right thing. I'm walking this way. And everyone else says, no, you're not. No, you're not. And so we are putting you, we are putting you out. We don't have the ability to discern heart, but we're making a public judgment that you that that you are not a believer on public evidence. Okay, um, let me read this one other little section here. They, meaning those who exercise the keys, are error prone and revisable. The, the actions and decisions to say otherwise erases the line between creator and creature, forsakes the lessons of the fall or trades in an over-realized eschatology that were too far down the road in church history in terms of final things 
A church must always be willing to revise its judgments in light of Scripture, which is perfect, unrevisable, and supremely authoritative. The Roman Catholic Church, on the other hand, essentially elevates the church's declarative judgments to the status of Scripture. Okay? The keys possess a kind of power of attorney for Christ, whereby the holder can sign on the bottom line on Christ's behalf, as it were. Or to use a biblical metaphor, the holder has been authorized to speak as an ambassador to a foreign nation on behalf of the king. Okay? The Roman Catholic Church makes a similar claim about its own magisterium. For instance, the Roman Catholic Catechism says that the bishops working in communion with the Pope possess the authority to define dogmas in a form obligating the Christian people to an irrevocable adherence of faith. So everyone claims that someone's got the keys. Okay? This is the idea that I'm arguing for here is that the apostles receive the keys as confessors and that therefore confessors have the keys in the new covenant, particularly in light of covenantal trajectory. Catholic Church, no, 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 no. The Pope, in condition with the teaching magisterium, has the keys, and that's why they're the ones exercising the authority. Okay? Um, so the promise, remember here, is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Uh, it's not that the church will be guarded from error in every pulpit and in every pastor and in every priest or in every apostle. Okay, the giving of the 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 promise is that the gates of hell won't prevail. Okay, and by the way, if you think about it, and I got this wrong for so many years, the, are gates a defensive or an offensive mechanism? Yes. <laughs> okay, so in the in the language of gates, all right, gates do not gates do not conquer anybody. Gates are supposed to keep people out. Okay. The image isn't that like hell is beating down the door of heaven, but heaven's strong enough. That's getting it backwards. It's that the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom polluting the darkness. Okay, the kingdom of God wins. Okay, it's it's those that the promise with the keys is that the promise in in conjunction with the keys at least is not that uh, no one will ever be in error, that there will never be a church who says something wrong, that's, that there won't be a public judgment rendering, rendered with the keys, uh, that, that, is ever, that, that, uh, that, it, that such a dis, uh, judgment cannot be mistaken. Rather, the promise is that the gates of hell won't prevail against the key holders. Okay? And so, in the church, the exercise of the keys is publicized in the ordinances. So don't read it rest. Everybody stop. Don't look up there. Look at right here. Just don't read the rest of it yet. Okay, just listen. Listen. So so how do you make public an inner spiritual reality? A, a change of heart, a renewed heart. Well, one, you have visible representations, the gathered body. This is a visible concrete. I can see and touch all of you, right? You're, you're here. We're corp corporate gathering. But you also have visible identifiers, passports are passed out, okay? Passports are passed out, and every week they're passed out in baptism, the entry rite, the visible public entry rite into the covenant, and they are stamped with the Lord's Supper in this church every Sunday, okay? So now you can continue with me. The exercise of the keys is publicized in the ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism binds one to the many as the public entry rite into the covenant, while the Lord's Supper publicly binds the many to one, Christ. 
on a recurring basis as the church seeks to maintain its purity and hold firm its identity. Okay? Okay, so now what we're going to do is shift. Oh, we're not going to shift. We're going to have to save. So what we'll do next time, I'm right at 845. What we're going to do next time is we are going to, and I, I know that we spend a good bit of time in Matthew chapter 16, but it's super, super, super important who holds the keys, what the keys are for the argument that I'm making. Okay? Um, next time we'll jump over to Matthew chapter 18 and work through that passage in terms of what that means for the keys. Who exactly are the two or three that are gathered how are we supposed to understand that? Why is that relevant? And then after we kind of settle down on an understanding of what the keys are, who has them, then we'll get, dip into the rest of the New Testament texts uh, that talk about how the congregation is the final court of appeal, okay, in terms of wielding authority and regulating membership, discipline, doctrines, uh, and officers. Okay, that's, that is where we're headed. So thanks for the time. Uh, let me pray for us. God, uh, Thank you for meeting with us and helping us understand these things. And pray, Lord, as we consider the prospect of us holding the keys of the kingdom in light of the priesthood of all believers, union with Christ, having the guaranteed authority and presence of God with us, that we would have a renewed sense of awe of uh, our responsibility and role, even as a member, that we are not passive recipients uh, letting the professionals do the work, but that we have responsibility and that we have authority and pray that that would sober us, but cause us to want to press more into the heart of Christ for the renewal of both our heart and our mind. So be with us in our worship service um, in, the, in the coming minutes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.